without further ado, Tony Rodriguez. Um, Tony, thank you. Thank you for coming back this year. Um, thank you for coming back this year. We've interviewed you a ton. Um, I thought we exhausted you of information. You come out with a second book that's apparently mind-blowing about literally building planets and stars and uh, this entire incredible 10 years of your story that um, I just didn't even know about. And it actually, it's absolutely intriguing to me, so I can't wait to hear about it. And uh, thank you for joining us again. It's, it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you here. So, Tony Rodriguez. Thank you. I got this. This is working? Thanks, Tyler. Can you, can you guys hear me? I seem to feel like I'm quiet, quiet here. I, uh, I don't want to do too many things with my hands as I fidget. I'm nervous. I've been waiting all week to tell you guys this stuff. Uh, a lot of this information is hot off the press. Not a lot, but some of it's hot off the press. And I shared it in Sedona last month, and most of the people in the crowd had never heard of me or knew any of my information, and there were times when I saw the whole rows of people jaw drop at the same time. And I'd rather you guys read the book. <laughs> who, who, how many people have read my book, Series Colony Cavalier? So, wow, thank you very much. So you guys um, will understand what I'm saying, and some of you won't, and I'll try to go... I'll try to keep bring you along if you've never heard of me and you're unfamiliar with this uh, information. I want to say thanks. Firstly, I want to say that last year a good friend of mine named Dale Triplett was here, and he's passed away since. And I want to I want to say that he is a very dear friend, and he'll be greatly missed. He he helped me uh, a little bit on the first book, and he was in the works of it. And he was a very dear friend, and I met him here last time, and it feels like the conference last year was three years ago. A lot's happened in this last year. Uh, my whole life has changed. I'm a completely, I'm living a completely different lifestyle than I was one year ago when I was here at the last conference. So I'll try to um, share some of the things that I've been working on since then with you, with you guys. Uh, thanks, you, you were thanking me for coming back, man. It's the other way around. Thank you, Tyler, and um, I was surprised. And I don't know, I think it might have been easier last year when it was all SSP material, so everybody was up to speed, so, um, you know, I kind of feel like the SSP guy on the spot, you know, speaker. Uh, I want to say that you guys, having probably the best name for any podcast in the history of mankind, <laughs> Journey to Truth. Is the coolest name ever, and I've given it a lot of thought uh, how I was going to, you know, mention that, but what is the truth, right? Like I keep thinking about that, like what is the definition, I wrote it down, um, a body of real things, events, and facts. And I, it just, that doesn't fit. And I look at a lot of things, especially this last year, so this information, my information of being abducted, for you guys that don't know, being abducted when I was 10 years old, being put into several different black programs, and when I exhausted my usefulness in a program, they retrained me and put me in another clandestine program and then eventually sold me off to the military and the uh, infrastructure of colonies in the solar system, the secret space program where I lived. And then uh, for a total of 20 years where they maxed out what a, my, apparently what my genetics would let me do and then they put me back the same night when I was 10 with my memories gone and many years later got my memories back. So. Is that true, right? Is that a, is that a truth? Like I, I soul search myself when I wake up in the morning and I take the dog outside and I go and then I remind myself that I've got a, a Zoom 
in a minute, and I'm going to talk about this. And it just hits me every single time that these memories, I, I don't have a few memories, I have a lot, and it's something that's true. But what is true? What is true? Are you, is, is what's going on right now really true? If I play, if I put a half black and a half white slide, is it gray? Because if I move it 200 yards away or 300 yards away where your eyes can't see it, it turns gray. Is that true? Is it true that it's gray? Is it true that it's black and white? Um, are you touching your chair right now? Is that true? Because you're not. You're a cloud of particles surrounded by clouds of quantum particles, and so is your chair. You guys aren't touching each other. You're a mental cloud, and so is everything. That's what's true, at least what we've been inclined to. So the truth is subjective, so we can look at the truth. You can dismantle the truth. And uh, the reason I'm making this point is because a lot of people, testimonies like mine are under great attack. In this last year, it's really, and I, I really fear for my testimony throughout into history, into the future, so that they can maintain the ability to do what they did to me to people in the future. The only uh, way they've gotten away with it is the secrecy, and the only way they will continue to get away with it is the secrecy. And that's why I'm motivated to do all these things, to come out and talk, because believe me, I'm you know, quaking in my shoes in front of a crowd every single time. But I believe in spreading the information. The only defense we're going to have is letting people know and not, and not letting it be a secret. So I think about that. And um, journey to truth, you know what I mean? You, you nailed it. So we're all stuck on the journey. Your truths are going to be different than mine. Other testimonies are going to be different than mine. And I, I'm a firm believer in, uh, you know, there are people, Tyler, you know, I message you all the time. I'm like, what are you doing having them on the show? I don't even believe a word they're saying. And Tyler put me right in my place. <laughs> Tyler put me right in my place and said, you know, the audience will make it, make it figure it out, man. You know, and it's just we got to present the information for what it is. The one constant out of every conference that I've ever done is I've realized that the audience is brilliant and that you guys are not fools. And so there are people that are, there are people, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be frank, there are people that are coming up here and genuinely lying, deceiving. There are programs to hide the information, to dissipate the information, and dismantle the effectiveness of the information that we share with you. But there are a lot of people that are very real and genuine, and they have a few things messed up too, a few mistakes, including myself. I'm not perfect. I, I would never claim to be perfect. I tell everybody, if you, if you listen to my information, go and look it up. Go and research me and pick me apart. And if I'm wrong about something, contact me. I'm not going to throw a fit. We're all after the same thing. We're all on a journey to truth. <laughs> that being said, I have some slides, you know. Um, I, I never meant to. I met somebody very, very clever named Jackie Kenner, Jackie Pierce at the time, and she put the website together. I would have never wrote the books without her. She's a master's in communication. I had the content in my head, and she had the ability to articulate and punctuate. <laughs> so that's how the books came out. And they're all available on TonyRodriguez.com. There's a lot of things that I do on there. I have a Patreon show. I have a memory course. I do consults. And there are links to shows on there. <clears throat> um, so, and also, my name is Michael Anthony Rodriguez. So for people that got that wrong earlier, 
I go by Tony, and I like to say it every time. I was born in 72 in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and uh, I'm a normal guy. I, say this, I like to say this every time that I start, and that's not why I'm here. Being born in the Midwest and living a normal life, I have three daughters, and I live up north now. I'm here because I have about 70 years of memories for being 50 years old. So for those of you that don't know my story, um, the reality is, is that I remember another 20 years plus um, of things that happened to me while I was taken into these clandestine programs. Um, I had a memory event. This is kind of what my timeline of my life looks like. And other people that have been through this too, so I'm not the only one. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> hey, look, uh, you know, it wasn't easy for me either. This is only going to get worse. This is the beginning one. So I'm trying to explain this to you guys. I just drew this up on paint. So I wish I had a pointer. The line on the very left on the bottom was me being born to 10 years old, and then I was abducted, and I lived for 20 years, at which point I don't know what the hell they did to me, to be honest. Many things. And I woke up. I was abducted on a Thursday night, and I woke up in my bedroom on Friday morning the next morning, and I was 20 years older in my head. And I lived all that time without dignity as a slave. I was abused greatly, and I saw many things, and I went into space, and I traveled into what was an absolutely teeming with life and busy universe that we are, that is hidden from us. Here's my house. I'm going to get through these quick. Um, I lived, it was very easy for them to fly up and take me out of there. There were no neighbors. This was the school I went to. A lot of the stuff is in the book. I, always, I used to tell this story a lot when I did the slideshows, you know, the whole thing, so that you guys could understand, but it's in the book in detail. Um, there was a kid in school I went to school with. It said his dad was an Illuminati. What's your dad do? We didn't get along. His dad came in, and I met him, and uh, the next night, these guys were in my bedroom, and, you know, in the middle of the night with lights flashing outside, like that. I can do this shit all night. <laughs> I was taken, you saw that timeline, and they put me back. I, like I said, I was taken on a Thursday night. Friday morning I woke up and I was a different person. I had no memory of what happened, but something happened. I, it felt like I hadn't been in my house in 20 years. Uh, I lived the rest of my life wondering, and I always remembered the first few minutes of the abduction, so those memories never got erased. So they erased all the other memories, but the first five to 30 minutes, yeah, who knows, it was a long time ago. Um, I never, for, never forgot that. And very quickly after the abduction event, I remembered, and I always searched. I, um, I read all the religious texts I could get. I, I looked in the ufology back in the late 80s and 90s, and it was, there was, wasn't much there. And nothing really um, struck a chord with me that was real. Nothing could explain what I had remembered. Uh, especially, you know, I thought the Bible would handle it. Um, I read the Bible maybe seven times, cover to cover. I read the Chan Buddha, the Torah, um, the Koran. I read all the religious texts I get. The only thing, interestingly, I'm looking at you, Tyler, and I, can, I don't know where Aaron's sitting, but interestingly, the common denominator from all the religious texts that I that I wrote, that I read, <clears throat> the one thing that they said in common, because they don't always have the same morals that they recommend, 
There was only one real tenet that all of, if you read the Bible, there's only one thing that repeats, and it's also in the Quran and in the other ones, and it's to be truthful. That was it. That was the only real common denominator that I found back then was that it to, you have to be honest, even when it's detrimental. And that was the, uh, I guess what I took away from that, because I sure as hell didn't find any aliens. Um, excuse me, grays. Later on, uh, like I said earlier in the, in the uh, panel, I, got a, I was having headaches in uh, late April, April of 2015, and went to the doctor, and she said, why don't you get it checked out, and I got an MRI. And then, coincidentally, the week after that, I ran into the Randy Kramer info, and he explained the 20 and back. And I had many, sev many, many fragmented memories of standing on a spaceship, looking out the window, of doing my job, of being on Ceres, being on Mars, I had all these fragmented memories. I thought maybe uh, it was past life or something. Maybe I was taken many times, I don't remember. And when I learned about that, the quantum time dilation that Randy Kramer described, uh, I went, oh my God, that's what happened. They kept me. It was one shot. They kept me and I grew up there and it all made sense. And all the memories came back. All, you know, the flood of memories, uh, a couple weeks of just remembering. and. Um, Right, so at that point you think that I'd be finding some help, and I did. I got in the book for some counseling, and I thought, they're just going to medicate me. It's not gonna, this isn't going to work out. And I started looking for places that I remembered on Earth. So unlike other people, um, like many others that have come forward, they didn't abduct me that night when I was 10 and take me to space and be in the program there. I lived on Earth for six years or so, and I was taken into black programs um, as a clone, classified as a clone. But this is the next one. Where are you at? Are you going to? Okay. <laughs> You're making me laugh now. This is the bulk of the book series, Colony Cavalier. That's the memories that came back. And Brad Olson suggested, he's like, maybe you should put a timeline where it explains what you're talking about, because it's pretty confusing, man. Inyo Kern was my first stop, Inyo Kern, California, and I went into a trauma-based mind control slash out-of-body remote viewing program that was the remnant funding of Project Grill Flame, which was the predecessor to Project Center Lane, which morphed into Project Gateway and then Stargate, so the remote viewing programs. I found through the uh, CIA declassified library.gov a lot of paperwork, and the dates all match up. I remember what I was being told back then. There's a lot of evidence about that, but that was in your current. Um, here, that's where I remember. Is Brad in? Brad, are you in here? Yes, sir. Um, Brad, yeah. Uh, so I, there's a video I'm going to put on an evidence website that'll eventually get there. I'll let you guys know. It'll be on the link will be on my website. But Dan Willis and I are working on a body of evidence of all proof. Of, that I've dug up supporting my testimony. And that'll go on a link. But Brad and I were roommates at the 5D events in Vegas in the Golden Nugget. And he, t he was, you know, the same way that I would tell that story. And he was skeptical and put me through my, you know, put me through uh, questions. And then he, this was on the way home for him, going back to California. He went out of his way and went to Inukern. So I've never been there in my organic timeline along the bottom. But I was there in uh, these three buildings is where I remember it taking place. And I found it, I remembered it vividly when I got my memories back. And when I found it on the map, I was shocked. I was deeply shocked. 
And um, Gus, it was 2018, I, um, a private investigator said, you know, he, can I help you find some evidence? And he, he logged on to a database that has every, the tax assessment for every structure in the United States. And lo and behold, these three buildings don't exist on that database. And they're classified as a California special district where the police have no jurisdiction. So if you were going to torture little kids, it's perfectly legal. Um, Brad went there and FaceTime, or Facebook, Facebooked me. And I was working. And I shut down all the machines and, and did the call. And it was a lot. It was like a kid remembering somewhere that used to, I thought it was bigger, you know. And uh, found some evidence. He found there were some things I told him that were coming up, and he found, uh, you know, I told him about uh, grapefruit-sized rocks that were just after the bridge walking up. Let's see. I'll tell you, it's pretty convenient to have a witness in the room to this trip, so. <laughs> also, I, Brad, don't think I didn't notice that a lot of your presentation was based on giants. I think that's a little biased. <laughs> you guys can read the book. There's a, another, uh, so that was in Yokern, so I haven't been there. I do plan to go there and visit and get in trouble if I can. Um, the burden of evidence is on everybody, especially now. And so I really work hard at it. And it's a couple jackasses that want to sue me for thing, call me LARPs and stuff. So I got to get all my evidence ducks in a row. And I'm fortunate, I'm blessed that I had that evidence, that I have sources of evidence. Seattle um, was my next stop, and I'm going to defer that to the book. So I was greatly abused there. So if you are unaware with the book, or my story, and you go and purchase the book tonight, I'll have some available. It's not a Star Trek episode. It's not a PG-13 episode. It was very dark. And Jackie, my editor, put the book down while we were writing it and went out in her yard and threw up. And many people have written the book and told me that all they did was cry through the beginning of it. So I would warn you <clears throat> that what happened in Seattle was terrible. So I'll just skip that. My stop in Porto Tawantinsuyo was a place that I uh, was stationed early on, and this must have been a CIA project. I was 10 years old, and I'd gone through a trauma-based mind control program, and they were drugging me. They gave us a drug, and I would be near death on plane uh, shipments of cocaine paste from that town in Peru to uh, Santa Marta, Colombia. And I remember it vividly. We went once a month. I remember it with great detail, and I always did. And when I found that town on Google Earth back in 2015, I was shaken. I, 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 I was absolutely shaken to know that it was real. I remembered the air, the airfield and the ride there. And the day I left, when, when I was of no longer any use to them and went back to Seattle, the day I left, the townspeople were all along that ride saying, adios, uh, los locos pequeño de la luna crazy boy from the moon. And uh, I never forgot that. I always wanted to go back there. My whole 20 years, that was the most, some of the most um, caring time that I had. So. Age, for 
I did. I grew from 10 years old to 30 years old, and I was an adult. I was an adult man and had relationships. And when I went back to being 10 years old overnight, this was in 1982, I was suddenly attracted to adult women the next day. And I had no idea. I had no, there was no internet. I was not, ex I was not exposed to pornography or any of that. So I had no idea what being sexually attracted was. But the very next day, I was attracted to, to women, to adult women, because the day before, I had been a man with a girlfriend. Um, so I want to go into this. This is, this is kind of some new, uh, new development that happened recently. Uh, if you guys, uh, some of you guys, I know, I've met a lot of people here that are like, man, I've watched you from the beginning, Tony. I watch your info. And you guys will know somewhere along the line, I said that the plane was a C-46 commando. And I know I said that back in 17, 18. I probably said it on Journey to Truth. Um, I, I'd, I need to go back and dig that up. But I remember specifically it was a C-46 commando. I had one guy in the village that spoke English, a younger man in his 20s. And he was my handler, for, for lack of a better term. And uh, he was happy. He loved it that the name was Commando. And uh, he actually said that there was another one for another town that was camouflaged, and he, he, wanted, he wished we had been assigned that one, but we had a C-46 commando for doing those flights, and I remember at once they let me crawl up and look out that little window in the beginning. I crawled and was flying, looking down at the towns over Columbia. Um, so then I thought, this is evidence. So if I know this is the plane, I should be able to find a flight log for it somewhere. I should be able to find the plane, and I tried for years, and I never found anything. And a lot of the, when you get into the, uh, what their version, Peru's version of the FAA, they have, it's in Spanish, and I, I, was, a, I was stonewalled there. They were giving me a version, best I, best I know, of like a ketamine and bringing me near to death. And this is uh, where the second book is going to really begin. So um, I was being drugged, and other people were talking to me. I was channeling. So they were being told if there were police waiting for them, if there was bad weather, if the plane was in the clouds and needed to turn left instead of right. I was giving them that information. It was an early warning system for drug runners. So now you know why the war on drugs is getting its ass kicked. They have psychics in a bottle, little kids. The first time they used me, it didn't work. And so they, they sent down a silver mesh blanket to block the EMF from the plane's instruments, and it worked. And uh, we were, did those flights about once a month. Uh, so here, I want to dig this up. So um, about four months ago, I did a show that was for the Latin America. And um, there were some people down there that saw the information, and they wanted to meet me. One guy was a famous UFO. Uh, he had an incident back in, uh, I think, uh, 94, where he was, he was a fighter pilot for the Peruvian Air Force and engaged a sphere and he followed it, and so he's documented, and he wanted to meet me, and they speak Spanish, and another guy uh, was a Peruvian Air Force pilot, his good friend, and they're heavy into ufology, and they said, like, they set up a Zoom call with a translator, Laura Morrow has a show, and I met them, and I thought, man, do you guys, uh, I thought, you know, after we talked, and we were getting, you know, we were getting ready to hang up, I said, wait a minute, do you guys know, either of you know of any C-46 commandos in Peru? Because I had found the flight log for all of them in the world, and I couldn't find one in Peru. His name was, uh, so Oscar Santa Marita, and the other guy was still active in the, in the Air Force. He's an older man, 
but he's still active and he does like uh, supply runs for the Peruvian Air Force. His name is Julio Chamorro. And Julio goes, oh, C-46? Yeah, those are, that's in Pucallpa. And I went, what? He said, yeah, it was in 1990, I was in the drug raids in Peru for the narcos in the Madre de Dios in Puerto Maldonado. We confiscated the C-46. Now they're in Pucallpa. So I went, wait, wait. And I went immediately to Google Earth, and I zoomed in, and sure enough, Pucallpa's whatever, a few hundred miles north of there, and found the airport. And you guys can go look at this, and zoomed in, and there's the fucking plane. So I paid Martin um, for about his airfare, and he flew there immediately, and got that close. And I tried to get him into the air, to get some details, get some tail pictures of it, and try to get more. And we're currently working on that. But that's the plane. That uh, is the plane. So I had called that out years ago. These, this picture is dated. It's four months ago. And um, when I, as soon as I saw that, I, I teared up. I, I couldn't. I knew it. And again, it's hard for me to wake up in the morning knowing that I'm going to have a normal day and feed the dog and then turn around and bump into these memories and know that they're real, that I gotta be, I have to, in good conscience, share this with you people, with everybody. People need to know that this is A, possible, and B, happening. So this is something that uh, I think is important. I can't take this to the grave. And things like this keep popping up, keep shaking out, more evidence. It's like every year something else digs, turns up. And I've been on the record since 2015. I went on, I was heavily researched by Dr. Sala and uh, Rob Potter and a few others, researched me heavily back then before I ever did an interview. So i uh, working on a trip there to um, Porto Tehuantinsuyo, excuse me, Boca, Colorado, and I want to go there. And He said you can't get to the plane because this was a confiscation by the Army or by the Air Force, that this is at that part is all locked up. So uh, we're just going to see what we can do. It's, and again, there's a language barrier. I'm trying to learn Spanish. I suck at it. So this is a picture from 2018. You can see it down in the bottom there, and you can see on the top there that it's clearly marked Puerto Tehuantinsuyo, Peru. So this is in the river towns on the river, the Madre de Dios, the mother of God. And that goes down river another 40, 50 miles to the bigger town of Puerto Maldonado, which is more welcoming. The reason this is significant is because this is dated. I saved this picture while I was making my slideshows for a conference I did back then, thank God, because uh, this is what it looks like now. It's built up quite a bit, and it's been renamed. So the town isn't named Porto Tehuantinsuyo anymore. It's now called Boca, Colorado, meaning the Red Mouth. And a town 12 miles to the east is now Porto Tehuantinsuyo, which means the information in my book is inaccurate. And somebody did that. So Porto Tehuantinsuyo with Tony Rodriguez had a historical landmark installed on Google. And I clicked it and went, what, pardon me language, but I went, what the fuck am I doing on Google? So, and I checked, I did, a, I did, some, I did some research to make, maybe there's a guitar player named Tony Rodriguez that came out of that town. So we looked into it. No, we never found anybody else that was from the area or no, nothing like that. And then somebody else uh, really dug, really did a deep dive. He used his work access. And that link led to a few other links and, and said, great place for kids. That's what. So to recap, 
this is the wrong information, and I'm going to have to make another version, a revised version of Series Colony Cavalier, and I'm going to update this information because this is a, something that could lead to it being very inaccurate, very tangible evidence being inaccurate in the future. So one thing's for sure, I will pass away and my story will live beyond me, and it will be very easy to hide at that point. And it seems to be there are people that are willing to do that. So a quick update on this. Um, Danny Henderson, who does the GSIC conference, did a live show with us, uh, whatever, a month ago. And somebody commented on the YouTube channel, said, oh, I saw that I took it down, some guy. And I messaged him on the comment. I said, please get a hold of me. I'd like to chat on how you did that, and, and you know, I'd like to talk. And I went back there, and so it doesn't say Tony Rodriguez anymore, because I've been talking about this ever since I discovered it publicly. So it, Tony Rodriguez has been taken off of there, but a lot of my friends and um, people in talks with Tony are all witnesses that it was there. And I even tried, I tried to uh, email Google and say you need to move it over here to the correct place, to the correct town. We'll see how that goes. Um, moving on, so there is, uh, and I want to say this about other, um, talk about everybody, about everybody, channeling, uh, abductees, uh, all of you. Everybody, you have to have overlapping testimony. That's our best, that's our best source. So if you saw Bigfoot and, you, and he had a red collar on and somebody from the other side of, of the world saw Bigfoot and had a red collar on and you both reported it, we'd have to take it seriously, right? Because you wouldn't imagine the wrong detail. So when we get overlapping testimony, it's important to hear that out and document that and keep an eye on that. Um, yeah, yeah. The lunar base is a huge part of overlapping testimony through pretty much everybody. Um, the trapezoid base, I took this off exopolitics, and that's exactly what I remember, the shape of the base. Uh, we were tested by one of those insects in a combat scenario when we were sold, sold off. This is a version of Mars. I remember hopping on dunes that were just like that, and uh, a lot of overlapping testimony about large insectoids that are indigenous to Mars. And that's what I remember, um, artistdrawingartofcon.com helped me generate that. Uh, and that's a great, there's a great deal of, of overlapping testimony. And I think it's important moving forward. So I could spend a whole lot more time just naming other people with this. One thing is, um, yeah, well, I'm not gonna go there. I'm not gonna go, sorry. I'm thinking out loud in front of you in real time. Not a lot of mention of Ceres um, colony. I, in fact, I believe I was the first one. I got my memories back when Dawn, the Dawn probe was not there yet, and it was on its way. So the bright lights on Ceres were beginning to be covered in the news. On, they were speculating that there was a city. And I said, no, that's the bright lights, that's salt. As soon as we got pretty close and got a good image, I remembered flying over the O'Cotter crater on our way to for what, what I remember of my time on Ceres is the radio handle for the Alhana Mons was the pyramid base. And inside that crater next to it, somewhere around there, was another crater that had giant doors that went into the base. And there's about a quarter million people living in there that were breakaway from Europe in the, after World War II or during the World War II time. So I don't know when exactly. But we would go in there. I also remembered flying over the Okada crater because it was a geyser that went off uh, randomly once every four to six years and the water would squirt up in the air and excuse me into space 
and evaporate, and then the salt would snow back down, and that was the deposit that it left. The O'Carter craters here, and also the direction of that, I found this out after the fact, that it would line up and that would be our flight path right back to the base. And uh, that checked out. So that's what I remember the direction. Also, I used Microsoft Paint to draw that. <laughs> Uh, the geyser, and it wasn't that tall. This crater is uh, 55, 54 miles wide, and the geyser was only about 10 kilometers off of the surface is how high it went, but that's what it did. So in 2000 and, uh, 2016, late 16 maybe, right before 2017, the Dawn probe got there and did a high-orbit analysis of the, of the white spots. And NASA released that it was probably sulfur and a host of other minerals, not anything but salt. And Dr. Sala emailed me and he said, do you want to retract your statement? And I said, absolutely not. If there's one thing I remember, I know that that was salt. We flew over it and we had a long conversation. That is salt. And he said, okay. And it took him four years to conclude when the Dawn probe slowly went into a lower orbit and finally got a really good hit on the spectral analysis. The NASA published it in August 10th of 2020 that it was salt, and I was confirmed for that. So that was cool. Um, am, I, am I even scratched an hour yet? Am I going, I'm going way too fast. That could be true. So I have some uh, I have some AI pictures that I never had before. So I want this is a this is a neat point that I want to make, and I don't know how to do it exactly. Uh, a guy named Mark Hallisey took my descriptions and he drew this of me. I remember that we had they had replica European cities. The cities were old already when I was there. They were already rusty. the 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 gate was already rusty when I was there. And the wall of the main cavern, you could go up and touch it, and it was like chalk. You could, put, you could write with your finger and indent. The, the walls were not. But those trapezoid-looking tunnels, they had found there already. They didn't, they didn't build those. They, it was already like that when they found it. And the walls there were hard. So there was something that made it hard, like, like stone. Um, in 2015, I was going back and forth originally with emails with Dr. Sala and with other people, a couple other researchers, and in a phone call, I had described what the street on Ceres looks like. And I said that it was, they had, in the beginning, they had light, they were shining lights up on the ceiling, and some of, some of the caverns that were smaller, they painted blue, like if you've ever been in the Venetian in Vegas. They painted it blue with clouds, and they had lights, and then at nighttime, to simulate night, they dim the lights or turn them off altogether and have another set of lights on, depending on where you're. There are many small caverns. Not, this is a giant one. Not so many this big. Um, and I said the street was, had a one lane in the middle, a narrow lane, and we were not allowed to walk in the street. It was only for EMS uh, vehicles, like a little electric cart they had that ran. That was the vehicle, and the police or the ambulance. So you couldn't walk. You had to go to the walkway. You'd be severely punished. Um, and I said they had apartments and shops on the side. So this was in a phone call in 2015. And then uh, the first episode of The Expanse came out. And they, that was in the opening scenes of the show of The Expanse. And I went, Whoa, wow, what a coincidence, you know, that they knew exactly what I was uh, 
describing. And I thought that's funny because in that phone call, I was just rushing through that because I had other points to make. And I didn't describe that really the apartments and the walls didn't look like that at all. They actually had columns everywhere, more like that. And it brings up the question that many other things in my testimony have percolated out into other testimonies that have been used against me, saying that I'm stealing them because they were privately communicated in 2017 in a private communication with somebody named Neil Donaldson in New Zealand. I was describing the temporal bubble around Jupiter and that immediately came out in a Corey Good interview the following weekend, uh, saying claiming the information was his. But the timing was in the direction of me. And I think that there's been a great deal of electric surveillance on people like me that have stepped forward and the information's being taken. And we're seeing a very concentrated, a very concerted effort to bury the information or monopolize it, say it's theirs. I do not want to copyright any of this. Anybody watching on the live, anybody watching any of this, I'm sharing this. You can plagiarize this all you want. Um, I'm a little upset about how I've been treated by some of the other whistleblowers, nobody in this room, and uh, about that, on that subject. And so I want to keep going about it, but I think that's just putting negativity out there. I just want you guys to know that there's a very real possibility that there's been some very nefarious activity in the certain information that's been let out. And uh, I'd be aware of anybody that's trying to copyright anything, claiming that it's the truth. The truth doesn't get copyrighted. It was really fun playing with the new AI stuff to make this art. So these are kind of better pictures of what series looked like. It was messy. It was not fancy with, with lasers and things. There were areas. The one thing that's missing out of every sci-fi show and every, even my art is they had ribbon screens everywhere that would go in corner. They were like television screens that would go, you know, like in the, um, you know, the basketball arena, how it goes around the arena, but they had ribbon screens, they were everywhere, and they would take weird shapes, and so everywhere had like a, like a fringe of a television with commercials on it. There were underground trains that connected everything, there were cities all the way around the inside, the interior of the planet that connected everything. Um, it was gray, it was made out of the local, you know, the mud, and a lot of places were older and looked like like I said, they'd been weathered. I slept, I had to, re I was like being in jail, but I slept in a barracks. I had a little, you know, maybe five by 10 with a cot and a little dresser there. And it kind of looked like that when I went home. And, uh, well, whatever, I'll lead into the next thing. So the, I wanted to get, it took me six years to write series Colony Cavalier. It was very painful to write it. I had to relive a lot of the trauma when I'd write it. There were times, literally, I wrote one paragraph and I fell into depression for weeks afterwards. And if you haven't read it, when you do read it, you'll understand. But um, it was always on a back burner until 2020 when roughly half of my YouTube videos just disappeared. I started looking on, I had a link, I had a website with all the links to all my, all my interviews and they were all became dead links and I thought, oh no, this is, uh, you know, I can get erased. Oh, there's a lot of work I put into this to share this, to try to get this information out there. And uh, so Jackie Kenner, who I mentioned earlier, helped me write the book. And it was a bestseller, and it changed my life. And getting it off my chest makes it a whole lot easier to talk about. 
So there was a great deal of questions about some, time, some scenes in the book that we had left on purpose, and that became the substance of the second book, uh, Project Starmaker, which I know Tyler is wildly curious about. <laughs> so here we go. So I was, I was telling you, that on the base, you were looking at the basic timeline thinking, this, oh, that's crazy. Have a look at that one, because that's the... Because that's what happened to me again. So, geez, where am I here? Here we are, this is us. Um, the bulk of that book, and I knew that during interviews, I knew, I had mentioned it early on with some researchers that I had those memories, that I knew what, that I knew those memories, they didn't make sense. It says, it's the absolute vaguest, blurriest, fragmented amount of memories that I have. Um, so I put them together because there was demand. There were a lot of questions to be, to be answered from the first book that kept reoccurring. And there are entire chapters devoted to a few questions. Um, but it's a short book, and it's very dense, and it's very much a, more spiritual because when I was being put under on these flights in Peru, the first few times, who knows, the first four or five times, it was like going under for surgery, which most of you probably have done is uh, I would get the dr an IV, then he'd administer the drug, and I'd lose consciousness, and I'd wake up and feel like shit in, uh, while we were on the runway in Colombia. But after the fourth or fifth time, I began to have memories of the first few seconds of what happened when I went under. And that became the backbone of what I describe in the book, uh, Project Starmaker. And I think that might be the whole thing, that, the reason that I remember everything. Like, I had a psychic that worked on me very long ago in, in um, Australia, and she said, you know, during, the, during this time, they opened doors in me that shouldn't have been opened, that I had to communicate, I had to do things that I wasn't meant to do. And um, whatever, that put me in touch in, 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 a, in a twisted way with my higher self, I guess. You know, and so that's the bulk of it's covered in Project Starmaker, and it's per, the book is written to be purposely confusing, in a way that doesn't make sense until the very end, because recovering the memories is like that. So experiencers in the audience, <laughs> I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm scared to, but anybody that's had experience to put memories that are fragmented together is a confusing and difficult thing. And so the book is purposely written to try to convey that to the reader that. One minute I remember this, and then the next minute I remember this, and then I remember this, and back and forth. And that's how it works. What are we on here? So this is the hallway scene in Series Colony Cavalier, and that's where the book basically begins. Um, do you guys want to know, do you guys want to hear about it, the story? Or anybody? Are you, really? <laughs> One day, on series, uh, they woke me up and walked me to a hallway like this, and then they walked us into it and plugged us into another machine that was the same, similar process to the original intake of the 20 years. And I woke up as not a human in a base inside of a asteroid uh, on the far end of probably the Whirlpool Galaxy, the M51 anomaly, Whirlpool Galaxy. And it was a society in an area of space that had a very slow amount of star form, forming regions. So stars form naturally in, in nature, and this area of space, the stars didn't form quickly enough, and they knew that they were, that they were a species that were eventually gonna run out of energy from stars. And so that project 
was way behind schedule and it was hundreds of years in the making that they were hauling material into a nebula and putting it into a grab, piling it up into a gravity well into a large object and then uh, hoping to ignite a star. Um, I was not a person. I was not a human. I was somebody with the mentality of a 13-year-old that um, didn't have a, you know, like I was a watered-down version of a humanoid during that time for upwards of 10 years. And they trained us to fly smaller ships and go out and scan debris that they had, that larger, gigantic craft would bring in. We'd see them on radar and they would drop material and then we would go scan the material and put specific elements, push them into the gravity well for weeks and then shift to another element. They were trying to layer the chemicals in a way that the star would ignite and remain stable. And because a natural star form, when it ignites, it's unstable for you know, a million years. And they wanted the star to ignite and be stable so that they could immediately build a ring around it and move in. And they used that energy that's clearly um, one of the most abundant forms of energy. So they were trying to figure that out. Um, we caught up. We got on schedule, and it wasn't a bad life. I want to say that I think I was purposely kept in that, in that existence as a, um, like I said, the mind of a 13-year-old. That was really the mentality we had. I had a small room. I, it had food. I had a bathroom. And I had a computer that had video games. And that was my social life. And I'd wake up in the morning and go to a mission briefing and then go out and fly all day and then go back to my room and have video games. And then that was it. And I, I didn't have the maturity to desire anything other than that. And that was the existence. But what happened was at the end of that time, we discovered we were all thought that we were going to be done when the star, when we were done, like a 10-year term. And what happened was we were immediately reassigned. And so we realized that it was a technology that they were going to, I could have been out there indefinitely. We were afraid that we were going to work on different projects indefinitely. And um, when the star ignited, uh, a few of us figured out a way to kill ourselves in it. And I woke up back on Ceres. And that is the story of that and how that worked out. And I think those flights on to Peru, that getting in touch with that space, I, you know, outside of time, gave me those memories back and sorted that out. So there's a bit of more of a, a reveal. There's more I could tell you guys that would make sense, but then why would you get the book? Um, so I want to move into some things. So some things that have been recently done. So on my website, there are links to all, uh, you know, a lot of the things that I'm working on, projects that I'm working on. Um, I have a Talks with Tony show. I don't know how good that came out. Uh, it's a Patreon show, and Jackie started that, and it's a lot of friends that I've met through that sh Talks with Tony um, are here, and which is awesome. We, it's really a really small uh, group of people that have formed like a family from it. Um, but in that show, there's, there are several tiers. Tier one is just shows that I turn out kind of like the podcast uh, where I have guests on. I've had a really, really good amount of guests on there, really um, really great caliber of people I've been blessed with to have on the show. And then I have an, an, what's called a tier two, where people pay a little bit more, and I do a live Q&A once a month for them to ask questions directly to me. 
And those are brutal sometimes. Uh, I'll tell you what, uh, those are exhausting. That's the one thing that's very exhausting is I get hit with questions. And I was recording them and playing them originally, but they got too kind of hot, so I don't record them anymore. Um, the next one I started recently was a remote view group because the tier three group did so well, we were doing exercises in remote viewing, and I was using, I was blending what I'd learned from my time in Inukern and the paperwork. Just, I was just researching to, to prove to you guys, I'm looking for proof, and I, I blended the techniques that I remembered from Inukern into a, like a, a tier, the tier three, the manifestation group. And as an exercise, we were doing remote viewing, and we, we got good at it. So things like this happen. So these are two separate people that are remote viewing in the group, uh, in the remote view group. And this is a blind target. So the only thing they have are a set of numbers that are on an envelope. That's it. And these are two separate people that have no idea. They, they live on, uh, very far apart from each other. And they kind of drew these things. And that was the target. And it's very described as foliage. I mean, it went into a great deal of detail. So we don't, get, we don't hit the high. Uh, the high score on a lot of targets, but we are getting better. We adopted some of uh, Courtney Brown, the Farsight Institute's techniques on the ideograms, and the accuracy really went up. And I'm studying um, Russell Targ's information from uh, Stanford Research Institute, and I guess the Pasadena, uh, you, Pasadena, I'm saying that wrong. There's another university. I'm, what I'm doing for that group is gathering all the different versions of remote viewing I can get my hands on and we're learning, we're teaching it all and seeing which ones work the best for us. So another guy did this one. And this, again, this is a blind target. He's looking at six numbers on an envelope and that's the target, what he, what he looked at. Um, so that's doing good. And the reason I mentioned that is you guys are, uh, there's kind of a free class on Thursdays on Zoom and I'd love anybody to come and join. It's a great, uh, it's a great thing to do. Learning remote viewing puts you in touch with your intuition that should I go left or right, that exact same action, that reflex, is the strength that remote viewing builds, in my opinion, and that's what we're trying to do. I'm not trying to spy on stuff. I did a remote view of my office, and it was the creepiest thing because I was like, fuck, they're right, they're seeing this, and uh, it's just I'll never do any of my own places again. It's, it's just... Uh, also on there, so... Uh, Jackie made sure to, that I would mention the memory course, and I didn't put it in a slide, but I gotta say, there's a, a series of exercises that I do. It's like 40 bucks to sell it. We made a video, and it's a memory course for people that may feel they've been involved. They have fragmented memories, and they wanna remember more. If you have a memory that doesn't make sense, and you wanna remember more of it without getting a hypno-regression, that memory course works. It works. And then, I would say to do that, and then get a hypno-regression. So, um, that's on there. But, the other thing is in the live, people started coming to me and it just happened organically where people said, Tony, I gotta talk to you, I have, I have all these memories, I don't know what to do. And I said, okay, and I would call, people would call me, and I said it earlier, I'm over, I'm over upwards around 2,500 people in the last six years that have done this. And so now, I, it got so many, I had to charge, I charge money, and I probably do three or four a week. And my primary technique is to organize the mess of fragmented memories that people bottleneck and give you into a timeline because you give somewhere for new memories to go and you make sense of the memories that are there. 
and you can, you can really extrapolate a lot. And what we've really found is a form of evidence that I didn't go in earlier on the panel question on how do you know if you were in a 20 and back, is that if you build it into a timeline, you can start to see repetition in the contact. You can start to see patterns form. And especially at the 20-year mark, there are capped into 20-year increments on time travel, apparently. And there's, it happens all the time. Um, that I, I try to figure out the intake event, and then I roll the numbers forward 20 years, and I go, well, what happened in 2013? And they go, how did you know that? Because usually there's a life-changing event on the in and out of the program, of being involved in the program. So timeline work is my primary mode service that I offer to people, and I tell them to build your timeline. And what I've, <clears throat> what I've realized is that you all have a timeline. This is mine. And I don't want to keep it up long because there's personal shit in there. But what I did when I made this in a, in a virtual environment and when I backed away from it, I was moved to tears. I was absolutely moved to tears because there are things in there, my kids being born, falling in love, being taken, coming back. But what's real is that you can look at your life. You don't right now, if I ask you to think about your whole life, you're not gonna think about all the things that are beautiful in it, you're gonna get a few things. Because your mind just doesn't work that way. But if you can put it all into a timeline and then look back from it, you can see your life. So I would recommend everybody organize their life into a timeline. And then one other thing that might be macabre, but is also beautiful, and I swear it's beautiful, is that you can see how much time you probably have left. You can see that it's gonna end. And I can look at this and I look at all that I've done, and this time here is just a vacation for me. This in between here is a vacation because I feel vindicated that I've already lived that life. And I think it's beautiful to do that, to actually look at it through this lens. And I would say that everybody, do this on a piece of paper. Make a timeline, make everything that ever happened, you broke your arm, you got a tattoo, you had your kid, your dog died, everything you could think of, put it in a timeline and then sleep on it and then look at it in one morning and I swear it's beautiful. I swear every single one of you has an absolutely beautiful life. God, whew. Where am I at on time? One last thing, I have one last thing. <laughs> I'm going to need a chair. Yeah. I was asked, I, I'll do this, Tyler. I think I'm good. I think I'm good. We can have a little, it looks like we'll get ten, five or ten, or 10 minutes of Q&A in. Hope, hopefully you guys have questions. Um, one last thing that I'm working on that really I've pivoted away from doing YouTube interviews. I haven't been on so many shows lately. Except I'm always begging Tyler, can I come back on Journey of Truth for like a tenth time? And he's always like, no, Tony, we got cooler people than you. <laughs> um, I did a, I did a uh, let's see, it was last year, but I, I was called to do a show on secret space program experiencers technology that they remembered in San Jose, uh, in Silicon Valley. And the idea was to get a bunch of venture capitalists and engineers and inventors to hear people like me say the technologies that we witnessed. And like I said, with the shape of the grav mat that uh, one of the labs in New Jersey ran with it and they have an experiment based on what I described. I presented a bunch of technologies that I saw. There's an auto welder we used, there was automated welding. Uh, and there was a learning software 
So in my book, on the time I was on Mars and our project got canceled, and I didn't talk about this earlier, but they took me to a bigger town, a subterranean town uh, on Mars, and retrained me. They gave me aptitude tests, and they retrained me, and I did ship maintenance. That was, I was qualified for skilled labor. I wasn't in command. Uh, you know, I wasn't a general of a war. Um, but during that time, I did months of, they just put, plugged me into a computer, sat in front of a computer, and they, the software worked differently than watching a YouTube video. The software monitored me and offered me decisions instead of problems. It doesn't give you problems, it doesn't grade you at the end. It offers you decisions to make. So you don't even know if you're getting the right one or, or not. There's a psychology about it. But it was way faster than learning. When I got back and went to school the next year, I completely withdrew. When I went back to my life and I went to the fifth grade, I completely withdrew from school because I missed the way that they were teaching me because I thought this is totally archaic, this is barbaric to read this book, to regurgitate this information. And so in San Jose I presented and I said, look, I can't make it, I witnessed free energy, I witnessed a, a anti-graph motor, but I can't remake it. I mean, you know, you guys all use microwaves every day, can you build a microwave, can you tell me how it works? But I said, the learning software, I can do this, I can do this, and I stood in front of a you know, a crowd of venture capitalists, and I said, we can build the learning software. And no one gave a shit. No one said anything to me afterwards. They were all after free energy and gravity. Nothing happened. I, I presented again the following month in Orlando, and I got people that approached me, and I put together Maple Street Learning Incorporated. This is what I remember. It's a little gray guy. This is my daughter drew this little sketch, but this was kind of the rig. And there was a place for you to hold your head and there were speakers, and then you would go in there and it would eye track. It, there was eye tracking, and it would present you, it would give you information, and then it would ask you, what is your answer? And you would just stare at the square of the screen that you thought was the right answer, and it would blink, and it'd go to the next one. Uh, there was a few other things to it. But when we were getting, I got with a tech co-founder, and he goes, do you need the rig? We were talking, and I said, I, no, I don't see why, do we? Do you think that makes you learn better if your head was relaxed? I was like, what does that do? Do you get? And I thought about it. And I went, oh, their fucking necks are small. It's for them. It wasn't for humans. It was for grays. They got big heads and little necks, so to sit in front of the screen for eight hours, it would hurt their. They would get injured. And we went. We both. We, we both did this. We both in a Zoom call. We went. So I spent a lot of time working out the logic. I've already been dodged many attempts to take the company out from under me. Uh, it's a Delaware Incorporated. I have a dev team working on it. We have an animation team working on it. Everybody that looks at it and signs an NDA and I show them how it really works falls in love with it and they want to they take it out from under me. It's like showing somebody the Lord of the Ring, the precious. It's been amazing. Uh, so I started the company last year. It's well-funded and it's on the way and we hope to launch a preschool version of it for preschool kids to be able to skip preschool and go straight to kindergarten, stay another year at home and go straight to kindergarten when they're developed because all they need to know is colors and shapes and how do you spell their name and et cetera. We're gonna use a version of this. The goal is to teach people curriculum, any curriculum in the world, welding, high school, all of it, 10 to 20% faster. That's the goal. So we're working on this really hard. Every time something, every time a roadblock appears, the the C parts for me, 
it has been like that ever since this company got forwarded. There's somebody else, there's something else helping me do this. I'm getting goosebumps right now talking about it. Um, I've had the wind at my back since day one on this one, and I'm going to continue until, I, until the wheels fall off. I'm going to do this. Um, everybody that does market analysis, when we talk about the Chinese with their AI, we're still way ahead of them all. It shows a lot of promise. And so we're going to do a preschool course. We have a lot of people coming out. The Connecting Consciousness uh, crowd is in on it. They want to help. I have a lot of people that are really good that are helping me. The marketing is going is a downhill slope right into the marketing. And uh, we're going to go from preschool to a, a component of the homeschool. So I want to say this. Um, you guys, uh, talking about education, I, hope, I don't know if Sherry's in here. Uh, to get accredited and to replace high school altogether, I thought, I thought, fuck, I'll just replace school with this. I can replace school with this. You'll never do band or gym, but you, we, could do, we could do math and the boring ones, right? But when I looked at that, I thought, how do you get accredited? Who decides if my course that a child takes, who decides that it's a passing grade and they're now proficient in high school? Does anybody know? It's called the SCORM score. S-C-O-R-M, please look that up if you feel inclined. And I thought, who decides this? Who decides what the SCORM curriculum is in order for the, and it's global. The score isn't just the United States, it's global. It's basically, you know, the US, Europe, it's probably not China, but it's like most, uh, most of the world. And you would think, well, it's probably a college, it's Yale or somebody, or the Department of Education, somebody. It's the US Department of Defense. That's where the transgender, that's where all the pronouns, that's where all that's coming from. It's the United States Department of Defense, it's the United States and Europe, Australia, it's the Crown States, South Africa, all of it is from the United States. That's who's doing that. So I have to appease them, and the way around it is to offer my courses as a bolt-on. And what I'll do is put a license for kids, for parents, homeschooled mom, because it's a, uh, I don't know if any of you homeschool, but I understand it's quite a bit of time. So there'll be a bolt-on for a few subjects that you could use my software and free up some time for mom to go do laundry while the kids are there and it can alert her on her phone and everything. But in that process, I can offer for a dollar other things that you may elect to do that maybe uh, people in this crowd would understand. You know, morality, you know, crystals, I don't know, anything. I, I, wanna, I plan on getting with Sherry on that. So uh, there's a lot of probability the world needs this. Our education system sucks. It's weaponized. I, I had a chat with an investor. I said, this isn't money shit. This is take over the world shit. So if you talk about your politicians and your doctors and big pharma, the idea is to train the kids to figure out the right thing to do when they grow up. It's too late for us. So that's the idea behind this. That's it. How am I doing on time? 10 to 10 minutes? We can do questions. If you guys have any questions, I, if not, I'm going to get out of here and go start a bonfire. It's uh, 7.48, so uh, we have time for questions if you want to do questions. What? And uh, we do have a question from the live stream. They want you to tell the story of the Red Macaw from last year. And oh. uh, for the people who weren't here to experience it, it was really uh, special. It was a special moment. Let me, uh, can I start this again? I want to get into a, I don't have. It's, it's not a touch screen. Yeah, I'm lost here. 
Do you want to go in this go, slide, Go Joe? back to Peru yeah, in the beginning. Just start over. Yeah, let me go. Um, okay, so a little story from the, from that from last year was it was the weirdest thing. Last year I had a film crew filming for the show in the Netherlands, following me with the microphone and everything. It was surreal, um, and I was sitting there working on my slides because I'm late. I finished these only a few minutes before I was due to go on today. I'm always late on my slides, and I was sitting there thinking, "Am I going to do any good at this?" And I looked up, and there was a scarlet-winged macaw in the audience out there in the cafeteria, and I went, "Oh my God." And I was, you know, I didn't cry, but I mean, I was a little flustery. Don't lie, you were in tears. <laughs> I went up and he set it on my, he, he set it on my shoulder. And um, that super fucked me up, man. Uh, it was a big deal. And I'll tell you guys why. It's because when I was in Peru, I was a very badly damaged person mentally. I'd been through a brutal trauma-based mind control program. And I was prone for fits of rage. When other um, kids would play soccer in the town and I would ask the play, he said, no, no, you're, you're not allowed to be around kids. And um, one day, my handler, I, Manuel in the book, uh, got yelled at by a boy. Uh, we were getting on the truck to go to the airport and another boy yelled at him and scolded him. It was in Spanish, I didn't know what it was. And he got on and he's telling, I said, what was going on with that? And he said, he's mad at me. And I said, well, why don't you just beat him up? You're bigger than him. And he said, no, he's blessed. He's lucky. He's got a blessed life. He had a term, he said in Spanish. I said, what is that? He said, he's got a blessed life. I said, what does that mean? He said, some people have blessed lives. They're always lucky. And that guy's, everything is like, he's got it made. I, he's like, something will happen and I'll get beat up. So I won't, can't mess with him. And I said, do you have a blessed life? And he said, I don't know. It probably changes for most people. And I said, does that mean I have a cursed life? And I was crying. I, then I was like, breakdown. I was, like I said, I was an emotionally broken kid. And I said, it's my life. And he said, hey, hey, hey. He's like, you don't know if your life is blessed or not, you know. And I said, um, how do I know? And he told me, he said, well, let's pick something and see if it happens. Let's pick something that you want and see if it happens. And also in this town, there is a great deal of tropical birds. So they come through. There's a yellow parrot one that comes through, uh, migrates through there. And... I said, what's the most, we would always bird watch. I'd say, did you see that one, you know, in the mornings, you know, I lived there for years. And he said, the most beautiful one is the scarlet-winged macaw. And it comes through here randomly. He said, it doesn't migrate, but it only, it's only a couple of weeks uh, after the rain that it comes here. And we see them in town. And I said, well, that's it then. If I see a scarlet-winged macaw, then I know my life is blessed. And uh, I didn't. I never did. And when at the end they were going, I was. I became no good at what I was doing. They were starting to put me under towards the end of it. Uh, after I was there a couple, two rainy seasons, and they were starting to put me under, and I was being sick. And I, he said that I was speaking only gibberish. That um, so they they were going to ship me back. We knew that I was going to go back to Seattle. They were sending a transport to come get me, and I said, I guess my life's cursed. You know, and I literally cried about it, and I guess my life's cursed. I never saw a scarlet-winged macaw. And he said, yeah, it's too late. You're not going to see one now. They're, they're never here this time of year. And a day before I was leaving, we were in the middle of town. We were right at the Plaza de Armas. That's in here somewhere. Anyhow, 
Uh, we were. We live right here. And uh, four of them landed right next to me. And I saw Scarlet Wing Macaws. And I went, my life is blessed. And so, I mean, to, to, <laughs> to let you know that I took it seriously, I took it to heart. So that's something that, that was there to remind me of that moment the whole rest of my time when I was shipped off to there to Seattle to go through the abuse of the next two years and then into space. And the rest of the time, whenever something, you know, bad, I always reminded my, that was my, that was my memory that I went back to that I saw those macaws, that I, my life was going to turn out blessed no matter what happened. And that was something that happened. And then so last year, it was like fortuitous, like I said, I was sitting there going, man, I don't know if I... I'm going to screw this up, and I'm, I don't have my slides done. And I literally looked up, and there was a scarlet wing macaw there for the first time in my life since that moment. So that was here last year. So. The chances of that so, are insane. Any <laughs> other super easy questions like that? <laughs> uh, um, first of all, thank you for everything. That was amazing. Um, so if anybody wants to ask some questions, I guess we'll just line up. You want to ask? Go ahead. I was going to ask you if you had a day job, but you answered that. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, you know what I am by trade? I'm a floor refinisher. Right. I've done that for like 30 years, and I still have a small floor company. Guys are working. That's what I do. I'm a blue-collar guy, uh, you know. So but like I said, my life has completely changed in the last year, and I'm going into the direction of the learning company. All right, who's first? It's just a quick question. But, you know, I'd always heard about uh, the past and the present, actually, like past life and a present life going on simultaneously. Could that be an answer to what happened with you at all? Well, no, because I lived through the 80s twice and it sucked both times. The music was on the radio at the same time. It was the same, relax, you know, the uh, Take On Me by AHA in 86. I was at a party in Seattle, and I was watching on MTV in Michigan at the same time. So I, I yeah, I mean, I, I got to go by the, what did I say? I took away my definition. I got to go by my definition of the truth yeah. of what presents itself and what makes yeah. the most sense. And it yeah. doesn't, I've tried that. Like, yeah. did this, you were on Mars in a past life. Like, yeah. it, there's a real linear, there's a real uh, linear line of events that I remember that I, I have to trust that it, it was that yeah. way. Yeah, I was just curious. I, not that I experienced that, but I always heard about that. So I was just curious. Yeah. Thank you, Tony, for coming here and sharing that. That was really impactful. So my question is, in all of these places you've been and all these experiences that you've had, is there a general concept of God on Ceres, on Mars? What's the concept of God that, is there any overlap? Um, on Ceres Colony in Kern, on Ceres Colony in Seattle, not in Peru, all of them pushed atheism on me to not believe in God. Where is your God now? Tell your God to set you free, to make you sick. They, they said, do you believe in God? Then have him come and set you free right now. And on Ceres Colony, the same thing. Have God come and set you, take you off this planet and put you back on Earth. 
have God come and fix what's wrong with you, you know, have God put you in charge of me because I'm in charge of you. It was always like that. They pushed atheism on us because you're a more pliable uh, servant at that point. But the entire time, I, I don't believe in God like the same way that, you know, I think religion is like a gymnasium for your spirit. I think when you're weak-minded, you go to a school or a library. When you're weak-bodied, you go to a gym. And when you have a weak spirit, you go to church. And um, I always believed in a creator God of the universe, that there, the universe is made by God. And I touch on that in the book, in the second book, Star Maker. So I always, it was weird because I had complete amnesia when I woke up and I still had, the one thing that I had in Inyokern was a belief in a deity. Yeah, they couldn't take that from you. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Okay. Hi, Tony. When you start teaching children, are you going to include maybe ways for them to use um, the earth, you know, like the weeds and everything like that, how they can survive and make medicines? So, like I said, there will be a lot of, there's going to be a lot of opportunity to bolt on things. So I'm not going to be able, because I'm tied by the curriculum, there's going to be opportunity to bolt on things. And like I said, I can, for a dollar, I can say homeopathic medicine. Mm -hmm. And so that'll, there's going to be a board of people that decide that content creation is very labor intense with this product. So building the content is the bulk of the effort behind it. So that's why I can share with you some of the logic because it doesn't matter if you take it, the content creation is a big deal. So there will be a board of people that decide that. And I think your idea is great. Thank you. Yeah, I have a comment and a question. So though my comment is your life is blessed because you have blessed us. And you guys have blessed me. Because you have brought out, you are the common denominator. You talked about that in, in one of, uh, with Danny Henderson and Elena, about being the common factor so that other people can believe because it's a corroboration of your data, of all, and seeing each other and knowing each other. You have blessed us with that. Even though you had to go through a tough time to get there, you need to take the blessing that that has taught you so that you can bring this to other people. And I see you being blessed that way and knowing the good that you brought out and knowing Thank that you. you could stop it for the next generation. Thank you. That is yours. The comment, um, that's a comment, and the question is, are you looking at any language teaching with your um, teaching program? Yeah, more than likely, we're not even going to be successful in America. So more than likely, it, so you're going to go every, whatever, every business, you're going to go to where, you're going to do the best where you're most needed. And so, you know, America's kind of a full cup as far as education goes. It's also the big budget. Like, I, there's a whole budget pitch deck I have, like the money behind what we spend on education, between twelve and 16000 dollars a year per kid in America is billions of dollars. Uh, but more than likely, we're, this technology is going to be most needed in countries that don't have, you know, the infrastructure behind their, their education. I Basically, I'll be able to give kids in Africa an education for a much cheaper, uh, but on a much cheaper budget. So we're probably going to end up doing many languages. Yeah, that's the plan. Because that you could bring, I, I would buy a language um, teaching program from that for myself. Thank you. 
I, um, I'm a Montessori teacher, certified in that, and I've taught, taught in Russia, an advanced school there that's no longer. And that's why I'm just so fascinated by your learning program. And are you going to be allowing for people to submit content and then, <laughs> and how? I, I'm just so uh, fascinated and excited about this because this could help everyone so much. So what's funny is when I first started going into this, back after Concept and after the company got formed, we did research into active, active decision-based learning, and it's only theoretical on college papers. So it, it, it's nothing new, right? Um, there is a, the development team right now on the dev server. It will, there will be a module that gets leased out to other uh, platforms. So if you have an online, whatever it is, course, uh, you could lease the module and then upload your content into it and then hire our team to kind of make it fit, make it fit, make the square peg and fit into the round hole of the software and it will work. So that's, that's like definitely probably going to be our earliest revenue stream is licensing the module out for it. So cool. Hi, Tony. Ron. What's yeah. happening? Where'd you get in? When did you get in? Just a while ago. <laughs> My question is... Uh, on the revised edition of the book, is the macaw going to be on the cover? <laughs> uh, the macaw was going to be on the cover of the first one. They got nixed. Uh, who knows? Well, maybe it'll be on the inside of the back cover on the third book. Okay. Okay. And, uh, and uh, maybe just respond to this quote. Uh, that one guy, uh, yeah, Elon Musk, he said that uh, it's easier to get to Mars than to change the school system. That's right. You want to know something? You want to know an interesting fact? Also, when we were doing research, we were looking at advanced. So, the, so right now I'm working on the preschool version of the software. We were looking at the advanced college version of the software. And when we started looking into what it would take to build the AI for that, there was one that was already in operation, and that's Elon Musk's school. Already has a version of it. Oh, I forget the name of it, but that's his online school. What's up, Tony? Barry, Barry. Great presentation, man. Thank you. Um, you know, you and I have had some very serious discussions, some of them privately, some of them on your show that nobody saw. <laughs> hey, wait, some of them saw it. <laughs> but, um, you know, something every now and again, somebody will say something. You said a few things that triggered a memory for me. And one of them was when we were talking about the building of stars. And you mentioned that here. So my question would be, you know, and after that, I asked the people I'm working with, the Alliance, because I have some memory of that, and I've been on board some type of a station that is around our sun here. And Jessica's remote viewed. I know they're trying to weaponizing the sun here. They're trying to. But um, as far as the beings that you were involved with, with the making of these stars, how many different types were there? And especially, were there any of the insectoids that we talked about involved in that? So in the project that I described when I was in... Sorry, guys. There. When I was living there, um, there were only two species. And they, they, they said that it was organized as a galaxy-wide corporation. We refer to it in the book as the Bureau. And they said that it was mo that galaxy had been mostly settled by its uh, indigenous. So only a few species is what they told us. But we were very compartmentalized and clearly lied to. And the book covers that. There's a chapter called The Lies. Because it was after, in the game, 
we were able to communicate and find out that we had been lied to about a lot of things by our superiors. So I was only aware of two species when I was there. And you saw them, which, which ones were they actually? What's that? You saw them, which ones species I was were one. They? I was one. I was not a human. So that's the okay. thing is like, when I was really taken into the 20 year program, they said that you could only go 20 years or if you went back, if you stayed longer, then it increased the probability of going insane. And so when they were shipping us off for 10 more years in the hallway scene, Oops. when I was standing there in line, think we were all sitting around thinking, we're, what? We're gonna go for 10 more years? We were, the end around that they did with the technology was to not put us into a human body. We were in, we were in a watered down version of a humanoid. We were in a basic humanoid body. So that's, that was one of them. And then there was another species that was our superiors that were full humanoids. That was all I was aware of during my time there. Cool. Thank you, Tony. We'll talk later, brother. Thank yes, sir. You. Thanks, Barry. Oh, I knew you were coming, man. Hey, brother. I, <laughs> I knew you were coming. All right. So here it is. Two, two quick, really brief questions. When you were forming the star, was it formed around a Taurus energy field? And second of all, if you had the materials to build your own star, could you, do you have the know-how, the knowledge to build one? Oh, absolutely not. There's no way. It was complicated. So we were scanning specific elements and specific mixtures of elements in asteroids that were being trucked in. And we would work for months to clear out. There would be a cloud of material. And we would never see the ships that brought them in. We could see them on radar. So in the book, I, I described the ship was a glass ball with a kind of a tail end on it. And in the glass, because it was in a dark nebula, there were no stars. You could, there was no light. The only thing we could see were the, ref, the, the heads up display. So you could see ships in a great distance come and deposit the material. I don't know if they were using portals or the ship itself, but they had a graphic representation of like this pen, like a big square, a big rectangle, and you'd see it on radar, and then you'd see the material pop over time. We'd come back the next day and that ship would still be there with more material. And that's where we'd go in the next month. So we were pushing material in, but we'd have to go and scan it, and we were looking for very specific chemical makeup of what we were putting on. We got, we got a briefing today, this is what you're doing. And that was, that was the method of this star build, because that was, their whole, that was their whole answer to trying to get it to be a stable star. Uh, and I'll, let this, I'll just say it turned out it was wrong. They, they didn't do it. They didn't pull it off. So um, what was the other part of the question? Or was that, could I build one? No, there's no way. Yeah, it was, it was a great deal of, there was a great deal of infrastructure that was, being, and this was a project that was, had been going for hundreds of years that I was on the tail. They brought us in, they came and made the deal with Ceres Colony Corp to get extra labor to break the project up to speed because they were behind schedule. So that's, that's what that was. Uh, thank you. All right, let's do one more. Oh, she's got the book, sure. It's just a simple question. What is the meaning of your circles? You know what? I'm not sure if I ever explained those or not. And um, man, I wasn't going to even touch on this, but those are the rank insignias. So before I had flight status, that symbol was what we had on our patch. Actually, it was like right here. And um, when you were in training, you had the circle with the dash. And then later on, when we got flight status, it went to the, oops, I'm doing this again. Ah. When we got flight status and graduated everything, that was our insignia. 
That was the insignia. So as you graduated, the insignia changed. So our insignia was a silver one. It was raised, like it had a bevel, and it was silver, and the guys in command had a gold one. And uh, that was our rank insignia. So I also did that to identify those were the different versions of that. And then they also identify in the book the chapters that are back to the project. Hi, Jan. Hi. Since someone asked about God, and I think it might help somebody in the future, will you tell the story of the moment when you became determined you were going to remember? At the end, very end, um, man, I, I feel like I'm going to confuse people, but at the very end when they were putting me back home, when they flew me back from Ceres to the moon, and they were putting me through the medical process to be back into a 10-year-old body, um, when I woke up, uh, and I had, my, it was, uh, I had my memories back of mom and dad and where I came from, and I had no memory of the 20 years that I just experienced. And they asked me, a reptile, rept, I'm in a room with grays and a reptile, and they asked me, do you, what do you remember? And I said, you guys just took me from my house. And they all laughed at me because I had been telling them, I'm going to remember this, I'm going to remember. And so I didn't at that time, and they laughed. They're like, see, I told you. And there was a taller gray on the back end of the room looking at a sideways monitor, and I was livid. I became absolutely livid. I was, here I'm in a room, I was a 10-year-old boy, and I'm in a room of ETs that are picking on me, if you think about that. And I became absolutely livid, red in the face. And the only thing I had was that my mom, who was a devout, she's an Episcopalian, devout Christian woman, recently, just a few months before that, said, if you believe in Jesus enough and ask Jesus for it, you'll get it. And so that's kind of all I had. In my, that was my only bag of tricks. And I said, no, in the name of Jesus, I'm going to remember this. And I knew it was powerful. And the guy watching on the chronovisor in the back said, guys, knock it off. And that was the moment they diverted me, and he said, he remembers. He's going to remember. Nice going. And so they got dead silent. He could have had a pin drop. They kept doing some uh, medical. They finished what they were doing, and then they had to put me through an entirely another set of procedures, and they were never really successful about it. But that's in the book. I don't want to go on for that. But I did call. So I did invoke Jesus' name. So I um, won't deny that. If that was the case, it was my willpower. If Jesus was there, man, you know, I'll take it. Um, but I did do that, and at that moment, it did change my timeline, and it did, it did let them know that I was going to remember what happened. Yep, thank you. Cool. And... <laughs> Was that over the, sorry, was that over the And that's what John was asking, well, was a toroid shape, and... Okay, you know, and it was in the torus section? No, well, I'm saying, now that I think about it, the, the nebula may have been toroid, but what is your question, Barry? <laughs> oh, it's got smoke, just smoke me. Um, okay, <laughs> just the actually gravity well itself, because what I was asking, and when I wake up with this information, I'm seeing this gravity well in many legion ships, doing things. So I'm wondering the bubble you mentioned, was it just a torus field or was it actually like a spherical so, over the gravity? So like I said, it was dark for, it was a nebula with no light. And so we were seeing graphic representations in the t heads up display of what was around. So it was a target. It was a round target that we saw, but they had been piling material into it from the beginning on probably an object that was already there, a pretty good sized object. And they were just pushing material in it until it eventually got mass and lit it, ignited it into a star. All right, look what you started, Barry. One more. 
Hi, Tony. Have you ever had anybody look at your astrological chart in terms of maybe you agreed to this before you came here? Um, I haven't done too much of the astrology stuff. My mom was into that back then, and she told me when I was little my chart was a mess. <laughs> so I never really took interest. I'm an Aquarius, you know. Um, so, no, I haven't really looked into all that, uh, but I wouldn't doubt it. And then I think we all agree to what we're doing here. I do. I, like I said, um, I think everybody has a beautiful timeline to look at. I think your life is beautiful, good, bad, and ugly. And I think every one of us, I don't think that a life is wasted. I think we agree to be here, and we're right where we're supposed to be. But that's me. I believe... We've discussed this on the show before, but I, I definitely, you know, we choose our life before we come here, apparently. It would make perfect sense that we choose to come knowing we're going to be abducted into the program so we could blow the whistle on it. I think that's very likely and po very possible. Um, thank you. Thank you thank so you. much. Good. Um, wait. Oh, uh, wait, I'm, I got a mic right here. I just want to say, I think I'm up to about 70 hugs since I've been here. I'm going for a record. I'm going to get you. Um, if you want a book. Um, oh, and I have some books for sale back there. If you guys want to see me, I got 20 of Project Star Maker. They're $1,000 each. 